everyone, and welcome back to another episode in the Conscious Parenting series here on the Decentralized Consciousness Podcast. Now, this is an episode that I recorded actually a couple months ago and um, didn't have the forethought to dedicate time to get it edited right away. So, actually, you're going to find that several of the upcoming shows were recorded a couple of months ago, um, right before we had our new baby girl. But uh, it was really exciting going back through this episode and editing it and remembering the conversation because it was such a good one here with uh, with Seb Bunny. And uh, Seb has been on the Decentralized Consciousness podcast before. And in this, this time around, he and I discuss his article, which is called The Surprising Solution to Our Downfall in Culture and Authenticity. In this episode, Seb and I talk a lot about the psychological and emotional connections between parent, child, and also peers. And we kind of talk about how those are related to our monetary system, but also, more importantly, the wider implications of a society which tends to become more attached to peer relationships than the parent. I always enjoy hearing Seb talk. He's extremely well-spoken and has a ton of knowledge on a bunch of different topics. So I'm really excited to share this with you guys, and I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. All right. Well, welcome, Seb. Thanks a lot for having me, Caleb. Honestly, I think that I first kind of heard about you through uh, Sama and uh, approaching things from a consciousness uh, side of kind of things. And I, I really, really appreciate people that want to kind of look at the world with that conscious approach rather than just kind of letting it happen. So I'm excited to talk. Yeah, absolutely. So I first, I also first heard of uh, about you and your work through Sama. Um, I think maybe the the one of the major things that we're going to touch on today is the the article that you wrote and the article is called the surprising solution to our downfall in culture and authenticity. So maybe to begin let's just talk about what first of all inspired you to go down this rabbit hole. You know what initially so my background is I absolutely love kind of educating people and teaching people. So I've been a mountain bike instructor and a backcountry guide for the last decade or so. And I really enjoy that aspect of working with others. Uh, But what I found around, I'd say in my late teenage years is I was working with these individuals and I would see these other coaches and these other coaches would be kind of 50 going on 60. And and I realized at that point that I was just like, this can't be a lifelong career of mine. Like it's going to absolutely decimate my body if I'm going to be teaching for another 40, 50 years. And so with that in mind, I started to kind of dive down the financial rabbit hole of, okay, how can I kind of build some security? How can I like, whether it's investing in real estate, whether it's going into the financial markets, how can I build some security around my own life so that I can continue to pursue the things that I really like doing? And from going down that rabbit hole, first, I kind of dived into kind of equities, uh, and then real estate. And then I started kind of getting into the whole macroeconomic lens. And I started realizing that, hey, our world isn't maybe as stable as I thought it was. 
there are some fundamental issues that we are facing around our money. And so this kind of led me into the gold. And then from that, I kind of stepped into Bitcoin. And I realized that gold being physical, it just doesn't work in our digital world. We can't transact with one another in an efficient digital nature. And so Bitcoin fulfills that. And so when I started diving down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, and you and I were just kind of talking about this before we hit record, uh, when you dive down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, you initially come for kind of the gains, and then you realize you're staying for the revolution, because this isn't about money. This is about how do we fundamentally change humanity? And so I recognized in that moment that everything is downstream of money. When you distort the money, you distort everything. And so this article was really highlighting that when you distort the money, you're not only just impacting uh, savers, you're not only just impacting those that want to try and make a little bit of money here and there, you're impacting everything down to the parent-child bond, which I argue is what kind of lays the foundation to a lot of the issues we face in society, whether it is anxiety or obesity, uh, ADHD, depression, all of these things stem from a breakdown in the parent-child bond. So that's kind of how it kind of came about, I'd say. Awesome. Yeah. So in your article, you begin with kind of a short synopsis of your childhood. Would you mind speaking to that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. So I kind of moved around a lot as a kid. Uh, my parents, I would say that, and it's always tough. Like when I look back, uh, some people are like, whoa, you had a tough childhood. But to me, childhoods are very much relative. And so at the moment, that's the only childhood I knew. So I didn't notice anything different about it. But when I look back, I realized that like we're a product of our environment. And many of my own internal limiting beliefs or things that I have formed throughout life have stemmed from my childhood. And so what I recognized is that, so from an early age, my parents separated when I was probably about four or five years old. And then we moved from, I was born in the UK, we moved to New Zealand and I moved there with my mum. And I never really jived with my dad. I had a lot of support from my mum, but very little from my dad. And my dad wanted me to go down the traditional route of whether it was like accountancy or law. And I was like, I just want to ride my bike. I want to be in the mountains. I want to spend time in the outdoors because that's what resonates with me as an individual. And my dad did not agree with that. And so because of that, I just didn't get that support from him. And so he would invite my brothers over for dinner and just wouldn't invite me. And I didn't at the time really put two and two together that this was forming who I was as an individual. And I feel really lucky that I had that support from my mum. But later in life, I started to develop a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of depression. And from this, I looked back and I was just like, man, where is this coming from? Is this just something genetic? Or is it something about my upbringing, which is spurring this on? Is it something that as a kid, I tried to please my dad, I, I wanted to have support from my dad. And because I didn't get that support, uh, I was suppressing who I was as an individual, I wasn't being my authentic self. And so this very much and we can dive into it. But this kind of very much builds the kind of premise for this article, which is kind of the downfall in culture and authenticity. Like, why are we seeing people kind of suppressing their authenticity? We're seeing this like herd mindset or the sheep mindset. And why are we seeing kind of a breakdown in culture? And I would argue that it stems from our relationships with our parents at a young age. And uh, I, I think it's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And you do such an awesome job of outlining, you know, these concepts uh from the beginning of your article um to begin with you kind of you kind of lay out the uh, the difference between a relationship between a parent and child versus the relationship between children and their peers can you can you kind of give like an introduction to that mm -hmm. yeah so 
one thing, and actually, you know, what, I, I would step back just a tiny bit to be able to like preface this, this talk, which is the fact that like humans are really unique in this world. We are kind of like the apex predator in, in society. And the reason why we got to that point is because there are, well, you can think of it in two ways. Like there are, the first way is that there are R-type and K-type species. And most people may have not have heard of this, but you kind of learn about it in biology. I remember hearing about it when I was a kid. So you've got R-type and K-type species. Now, R-type species is for like reproduction. These are things like rabbits, whereby their offspring, they don't invest much time into each of their offspring, but what they do to kind of counteract that is they have tons of offspring and hope that some of them will survive. Then you have K-type species. Now, K-type species are kind of like elephants. They have one or two offspring and they heavily invest their time into those individual offspring. So they maximize their chances of survival. But if they lose that offspring, then it can be incredibly detrimental to that elephant population. And so humans, we have evolved to a point where rather than having tons and tons of offspring, we instead have a couple offspring and then we dedicate time to that offspring. So immediately what you can gather from that is that that parent-child bond in those early years is incredibly important because our parents basically set the stage for the rest of our life. They are kind of that anchor point that allows us to grow. And now secondly, when we are born, our brain is only a quarter of its size because we have to be able to fit through kind of our, our, our mum's kind of birth canal. And so our brain is only a quarter of its size and 90, 90% uh, of, or sorry, the other three quarters happens outside of the womb with 90% of that growth happening by the age of three. And so we recognize that those first three years or so are incredibly vital that we have that strong parent-child bond because we are growing into who we are as adults. If our parents don't meet our needs in those early years, those formative years where our brain is growing, then that can be massively detrimental to kind of the rest of our life. And so what I kind of, uh, one quote that I kind of use early on in the, in the article is that like attachment enables children to hitch a ride with adults who are at least in the mind of the child assumed to be more capable of orienting themselves and finding their way. And so this is kind of really important. Like our parents act as that like guiding compass. They act as that like rock, which kind of allows us to explore the world from a safe space. And now, so when you say you've got kind of the, the parent bond and you've got the child bond, uh, sorry, the, the peer bond. Now, these are two very different connections. Now, as an adult, they don't matter too much. They're very similar. However, as a child, and I would say under the age of 15, our peer relationships are very different to our parental relationships. The parent acts as that like rock, that guiding compass, which is massively needed in those early developmental years. However, the peer relationship kind of acts in an opposite way, because as peers, we want to we want to fit in, we want to connect, and that connection is really important. But in order to connect, we want to look the same, we want to sound the same, we want to have the same mannerisms, because we're, we're scared of rejection. And if we're scared of rejection, then what are we going to do? We're going to suppress who we are as an individual, so we lose that authenticity. And so in society today, and this is really important to note, is what we're seeing is, as money is uh, kind of losing its value, parents are having to go out and work more. Now, if parents are having to go and work more and we are seeing more dual income earner families, and like in Canada, for instance, over the last, I think it's over the last 40 years, we've seen a 100% increase in dual income earner families. So both parents are having to go work, which means there's less connection between the parent and the child. Now, if there's less connection between the parent and the child and the parent is looking to their peers, but that peer relationship is a very superficial relationship, 
because they're trying to suppress who they are in order to fit in, then that individual is not learning to be their authentic selves. And as we'll probably get into it, like that is absolutely vital because expression is so important because you need to be able to express yourself and your needs. And if you do not express yourself and your needs, this can lead to other issues down the line, such as depression and anxiety, because we don't know how to meet our own internal needs. Wow. Yeah. So, so for me as a, as a parent of a two-year-old, I, no pressure, right? I mean, <laughs> I just feel like this immense, immense, uh, immense weight to try to, you know, to help my son feel this, uh, authentic connection and, and, and love for me as a parent. So, you know, as several times kind of throughout your writing and, and while you're just speaking, I sort of, you know, I sort of take a step back, I zoom out and I, and I think about how, you know, the world is designed so that, and intentional or otherwise, but it's like the design is the parents spend as minimal time with their children as possible. I mean, the, the, and when the parents are with their kids, they're exhausted and, you know, they just, they just want, they just want to rest, you know, because, and then, because they've been working all day. And then when the, um, and then when the kids are, you know, they're sent off to, to school, they're placed into a room with a bunch of other kids, the same age. And then the adult in the room really through no choice of their own, they don't really have any other choice but to interact with them by means of control. I mean, there's no really good way to interact with a group of 30 kids. At least that was kind of my what my class sizes were when I was in high school. You know, there's no good way to interact with a, a group of this many people um, in only a short span of like 40 minutes. I think my classes were 40 minutes. So imagine the teacher has to they have to get something done they have to have something on paper that says you know i accomplished x y and z and they only have 40 minutes at a time to communicate with a group of 30 incredibly unique individuals who are different in every possible way i mean so not only are the these kids they don't have the attention and presence and uh, outpouring of love that naturally comes from their parents, but they also aren't getting anything even close to it from the teachers, the adults in, in the room either. So, so it's really, it kind of makes me sad to, to think about it. Um, but as, you know, as people who are listening to this series are going to, you know, sort of find as a, a big theme for me and a big curiosity of mine is figuring out a different mode of education for my children and exploring all of these different possibilities. I, I think I have a, a pretty strong grasp of the problems that are caused by our system of education and the way, you know, just being by, by, by sheer nature of the way that it's formed and the way that, you know, it incur, it's not necessarily encouraging of the authentic self, but more so for, for things external to the students. And, um, you know, I couldn't help but notice that you as a child had made a big decision to, you know, leave the traditional education system. What was your experience with that? Well, and here, and I want to touch on one thing before I dive into that, because I think it's interesting that you pointed out, which is you said whether or not the system is kind of intentional or not. And 
I think that's really fascinating because I think a lot of people, it's that big question. It's just like, is this intentional why this is happening or is it not? And I think that, again, that this is that idea that everything kind of stems from the money. And so when you distort the money, you distort everything downstream of money. And I think now money has a lot of like stigma behind it, the word money. And I think that if we actually just step back and ask ourselves, well, what really is money? Well, you can think of it as if the only way to obtain money for the average person, ignoring a government, if the only way to obtain money is I either have to go to work and expend my time or I have to go and expend my energy. So if you think about it, money is just time and energy. So if money is just time and energy, yet we have a government who is devaluing the currency through monetary debasement, then what you start to realize is that our time is being diminished. So if our time is being diminished and we're not able to spend that time with our kids, with our family, then what ends up happening is we'd spend more time at work to be able to have the same lifestyle that we did yesterday. And so this is where I wouldn't necessarily say that it is intentional, and I, I can't prove this, it's just my assumption, but I wouldn't necessarily say that it's intentional. However, what I would say is that when someone has a money printer, it creates a system whereby if you have a money printer and you can just turn it on, then you have a system that is always going to alleviate short-term pain without ever looking to the future. Because if you have the ability to alleviate short-term pain, then why would you not do that? And so I think that this is where it's really fascinating is that when you have a system with a money printer and someone can just press a button and print more money and stimulate the economy, not only are you devaluing the currency, but that money, there's no way for it to be used productively because those people never had to earn it. They never had to invest time and energy into it. So all they're doing is putting out little forest fires that are starting to arise from their own previous behavior. And so I think that when it comes to the school system, this is one of those things that's happening. It's like uh, we have 30 kids in the classroom and uh, Daniel Prince talks about this a lot on his podcast, Once Bitten, which is we have a school system that came about in the 17th century, the Victorian era. And the whole idea and the whole premise of our school system was to create a labor workforce, a factory workforce. And so when you're trying to create a factory and labor workforce, you want uh, people that will listen, people that will obey orders, people that will go from A to B when they're told to go from A to B. And so when you have one hour blocks and you have four or five of these one hour blocks every single day for these students and every single hour a bell goes off and then they have to move, what ends up happening is that kid can never get into a learning state, a flow state of actually like engaging with the information that he's learning. Because if it takes 15 to 20 minutes for him to actually get engaged in the classroom and then start to get into that flow state of learning, assuming that he even likes the subject, and then even once he gets into that flow state, You've only got five, 10 minutes left of the lesson and then the bell goes off and cuts it short. And so kids are just basically being put in this environment that is incredibly stimulating because you've got tons of kids around you. So you're not getting that parental attachment, but you're having a bell going off every hour, which is distracting their flow. So it's not really conducive to growth. It's not really conducive to uh, engaging and interacting with our environment. Whereas I think you've you mentioned that you've looked into alternate ways of educating. And I think that what's fascinating is that as a child for myself, what I recognized is that when I went out mountain biking, uh, or I had my own time to learn something, I could sit there and get in that flow state for five, six hours. And I would learn far and above what my other friends would learn when they had 30 minutes to do something, but they had 10 blocks of these 30 minutes throughout the week. And so for me, I really realized at a young age, that if you want to learn, you have to dedicate time to something. And that doesn't mean that you can be multidisciplinary and you can learn lots of different things, but it's just allow that learning process to play out. Let yourself go into that flow state and get immersed in whatever it is you're learning rather than cutting it short 
and just being like, oh, I've only got half an hour to learn this and not really engaging what, with what it is you're learning. And this is where more and more as I speak to parents that are going down the homeschooling route, they're able to allow their kids to dive into the things that resonate with them rather than telling the kids, okay, we're going to do this and then we're going to move to this and then we're going to move to this. And you're never really letting that kid find who he is as an individual, find that authentic self, what it is that resonates with him, what it allows him to learn in this incredibly chaotic, stimulating environment that we live in. Is there a difference between what we deem as an educated person and what an ideally educated person would be? And if so, what what is that difference to you? You know what? So this this is a thing that I find really funny. It's because it kind of ties to the our monetary policy in our central bank. So our central bank deems that a productive society is one that has 2% inflation and 2 to 3% growth in GDP and is maximum employment. So that is what we deem as a productive society. But what happens if that is these are just measures, arbitrary measures that we have said as a productive society. And actually, when you're targeting inflation, you're devaluing the currency. What you're doing is you're inhibiting people from saving, because why would you save one day to the next if your currency is worth less? But two, you're trying to push maximum employment when we've got a society where technology is making things cheaper and it's, a, it's easing the quality of life or should be easing the quality of life. And so if we're trying to push people to work and we're devaluing the currency over time, I would argue that that is not a productive society. And this is the same thing when it comes to education. We have set these arbitrary measures whereby however many initials you have after your name, uh, that is what we deem as someone who is successful in life. But the reality is that, again, this is just arbitrary. And a lot of these individuals, if you put them into a scenario where they had to be self-sufficient, whether it is through like farming or living off the land or being resourceful with the with the things that they have access to, a lot of these individuals would quickly succumb to their environment. And so I think that we're building a world that is not very, um, not very adaptable. Uh, we're building a world that is very cognitive, but we've kind of disconnected from who we are. We've disconnected from our authentic selves. We've disconnected from the things that resonate with us internally. And so for me, what I deem as someone who is successful is someone who's able to understand themselves, someone who is in touch with their emotions, someone who is in touch with what it is that resonates with them. And who's me to say that if you want to go down the route of teaching mountain biking or you want to go down the route of law, if law is what really inspires you, then that is freaking awesome. But if law is not what inspires you, but you go down it because you've been pressured by those around you in society, then I would argue that you've lost your way. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that I want to want to point out too is there are pressures all around us and they're extremely, extremely subtle. So, you know, just because to use your example with going into law, just because, you know, maybe your your parents aren't are not lawyers or something like this doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, a choice to pursue um, an education as a lawyer or to become a lawyer doesn't necessarily mean that you're still not being pressured. You still have to consider the pressures from peers. Um, you know, for me, a big part of my childhood was about status. It was about, you know, I was able to get the grades. I was able to, you know, get accolades in school and have a ton of friends and this kind of thing. And, you know, as I go, as I'm growing today and I turn back and and reflect on those experiences. I just, 
I really begin to notice for me how empty those things really were. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the the choice to pursue a career that is, you know, one of of high status and has a lot of money and these kind of things. You know, if you can take a step back and say, you know, without these things, would I still want to be a lawyer? Would I still want to help people in this regard? And if the answer is yes, then great. Um, but I think, unfortunately, as you were saying, the incentives are have gotten so distorted that, you know, we've just been reaching and reaching and reaching for love that is coming from without uh, without instead of within. And, you know, the the parent is what is the person who teaches us how to find love from within, how to feel that, you know, no matter what what I do, no matter what I say, no matter who I am that there is love. And if the parent isn't there to give that to me, then I start getting confused as a, as a child. Um, so that kind of leads me to, to the, the next thing that I wanted to talk about, which was the, you know, the parent child bond section of your article. And, and you talk in, in this section about you can, as a, as a child or as an adult, you can be in either the protective state or you can be in the growth state. Can you talk a little bit about those two different things yeah yeah 100 percent. so this goes back to kind of the importance of that parent-child attachment and that or that parent-child bond and so as a kid if our parents were able to act as that like solid foundational anchor that compass that helps kind of guide us and find out who we are as an individual we can approach the world from a very much a growth mindset where because we know that we have that support from our parents we can put ourselves out there and we can take risks And this is incredibly important because in the end, if we think about like capitalism, for instance, capitalism, it's got, again, it's it's got a lot of stigma behind it, but capitalism is an inherent emergent structure. It has happened all the way throughout evolutionary history because those that are able to use the resources around them more effectively are the ones that thrive and survive. And so as children, if we're able to have that support from our parents to go and push ourselves into areas that are uncomfortable for us, then we grow as individuals and we can start to learn to use the resources around us. Now, the opposite is if our parents, let's say they have to go out and work because they can't afford their rent and so they have to take on an extra job. So you spend a lot more time with your peers. So you don't have that anchor that is kind of really cementing you in society and allowing you to explore. Instead, you're looking to your peers. Now, if you're looking to your peers and you're trying to fit in and that is your absolute objective is to fit in, then you're going to suppress who you are as an individual. And if you're suppressing who you are as an individual, you're instead going to approach the world in kind of a state of fear. You're just like, well, where, where can I slip up? How is this going to impact, uh, impact my attachment with my peers? How is this going to impact uh, who I am as an individual? And so as a result, we very much kind of close off to the world and kind of become more reclusive. And so this is huge because... <clears throat> Like, again, like another quote that I really love, and this is by a guy named Gabo Mate. And Gabo Mate is based out of Vancouver, about two hours from where I live. Uh, and he's fascinating. He, child's, he studies a lot of child development, uh, ADHD trauma, and how our upbringings have impacted who we are. And one of the things that he says is maturation requires that a child first becomes unique and separate from other individuals. The better differentiated they become, the more they're able to mix with others without losing their sense of self. And so what he's basically saying is that if we don't have that solid parental bond that allows us to identify who we are and we can explore the world in this growth mindset, what happens is we lose ourselves because we don't know who we are. So when we're interacting with others, 
we're trying to basically assimilate with them. We're trying to be the same. And so we lose our sense of self. And so as we grow up in society, what we realize is that if we didn't learn how to express our emotions effectively, if we limited our uh, ability to express ourselves, he says something along the lines of like, what our, what our mouths do not speak, our bodies will show. And so if we cannot express ourselves through our words and we cannot say, okay, I need this in this world, this is how I'm feeling in this world, what ends up happening is it shows itself in the form of illness. And so an example would be depression. So depression, what is depression? If we actually just break down the word depression, depression, uh, depression is the depressing of emotions. And so as a kid, if we never learned to express ourselves effectively, then we would depress our emotions in order to fit in through fear of rejection. And so as an adult, when we are feeling uncomfortable, when we're feeling sad, when we're feeling frustrated, we don't know what those feelings feel like. And they begin to kind of boil up inside of us. And this leads to things like depression because we've never learned to be able to emotionally express ourselves. And so you can start to see how the way our parents interacted with us as a kid is very much predictive of what our future may entail. And now one more example, which I'll give is as a kid, I was diagnosed with ADHD. So attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and ADHD. This is talked about so much throughout society, but a lot of people tend to think of it as being genetic, but it is far from genetic. It is definitely environmental. And there's a lot of studies that are starting to show that it is environmental. And now, first off, why would it be environmental? Well, there's no genetic markers which indicate whether someone is going to have ADHD or not. We cannot test for ADHD in our genetics and say this person is going to have ADHD. Instead, it seems to show itself in early childhood. And so what a lot of people such as Gabo Mate tend to, uh, what the data tends to show is that as a kid, if we are in an uncomfortable situation, we have three ways we can respond. We can fight if we're kind of two to three, four years old. We're not going to fight our parents. If our parents were not giving us what we need, we're not going to fight our parents. We, we, we're a lot of the times we respect our parents and we need that attachment. So we're not going to fight them. Well, we can flight, we can run away. Again, if we're living under their roof and we're three or four years old, attachment is absolutely vital. So we're not just going to go and run away. And then finally, there's fight, flight, or freeze. And freeze is just kind of disconnect emotionally or disconnect mentally from this uncomfortable situation. And so in this environment, ADHD stems from the fact that when we find ourselves in our early years in uncomfortable situations, whatever that uncomfortable situation may be, if we're not fighting back and we're not running away because we can't, then we learn to disconnect emotionally and mentally. And so this is what kind of stems into kind of the rest of our life. In school, when we find ourselves in an uncomfortable situation, rather than being able to, okay, you know what, engage, cognitively focus on what it is that I have to do, I've learned as a child to disconnect and this is what leads to this attention deficit. We really struggle in uncomfortable situations because as a child, we never learn how to regulate ourselves. And so we learn to disconnect. And so what you're starting to see and what I really try to highlight in this article is that when the whole like nature versus nurture argument, we are very much a product of our nurture, very much a product of our environment and things like ADHD, things like depression, things like obesity, they stem from our environment and how we are brought up as children. Yeah, I find this topic really, really interesting. Um, so you had mentioned like in your article that you like when a, when a child is between, I think, zero and up to 10 years old, we're in what are called theta brainwaves. And basically what that means is that everything that we see, uh, everything that we experience, for the most part, we're not really 
contemplating it in any sort of way. So it's like when this experience happens, when people tell us something, we just believe it to be true. And so we're quite literally, as you, you know, as people often say, we are sponges as, as we are children. So when you're diagnosed with anxiety, ADHD, these kind of things, you believe that you immediately believe that there is something different about you. You are, you know, and to me, to me, this is such a detriment to kids, especially considering what you're saying, which is there aren't genetic markers. There not, there's nothing physically going on. There's nothing that we can point out in the human brain that says, yes, this brain is an ADHD brain. No, this, this person was, you know, was diagnosed based on a certain set of criteria, which are also changing really regularly. It's just, it's just insane to me. Um, so I, I, and I don't know, maybe you can, maybe you can speak to that a little bit further. Yeah. And there's actually, so just recently I was on the, uh, the once bitten podcast with, uh, Daniel Prince, and we were talking about this and he recommended, and I would, if people are fascinated by this kind of topic, I would highly recommend listening to his discussion with a lady called Naomi Fisher. And so Naomi Fisher was a, I believe she's a psychiatrist uh, that works with the NHS in the UK. So the NHS is National Health Service. It's basically the subsidized health system in the UK. And she has specialized in kind of this developmental area and with ADHD diagnoses and things like that. And what she noticed is that she kind of gave up on the system when she had a two-year wait list for ADHD diagnoses. And so the way she describes it is that there is a blame or brain kind of approach from parents. So when it comes to your kids, if a kid has the tendencies of ADHD, then they can either look at it from the blame. Well, it is from our environment. It is from our upbringing, which is kind of this, this ADHD is stemmed from, or the brain. Well, it's just it's inherent in his brain, we can't help it. And a lot of parents really struggle with accepting that because of their upbringing, and well, not their upbringing, because of their environment that they provided for their sons or their daughters upbringing, that ADHD is stemmed from this, they really struggle with that. And so instead, what is far easier is to go to a psychiatrist and get an ADHD diagnosis saying, don't worry, it's just there's something wrong with their brain. And so as a result, what do we do? We put them on medication, and we suppress who they are as an individual, but this doesn't fix the problem. And it's just like, again, we go back to the money. When you print more money to mask these this fragility in society, we're not fixing the issue. We're only masking the issue. And this is exactly the same with ADHD. When we have these kids that are they're, they're hyperactive, they want to engage with things, but they're struggling with their attention. Well, why is this coming about? Well, we've got this deteriorating parent-child bond. And then we've got the school system with so much stimulus where they're being told to sit at a desk and then every hour the bell's going off and then they're having to transition between subjects and then they've got 30 kids in the classes are shouting. Like you can understand why they may have attention deficit because our environment is not conducive to learning. Our environment is not conducive to finding our authentic self. And so this is huge. And so I think that in society, uh, what is happening is that we don't necessarily realize, but we're going down this path of alleviation, not just in the money, but in everything. We're just trying to find quick fixes to mask the issue and to move on with life. But these issues, because they're not fixing the solution or fixing the problem, we're creating this underlying fragility in society where more and more people are unable to be effective, productive members of society because they think something is wrong and nothing is wrong. 
We're just a product of our environment. And if you read Gabor, uh, Gabor's book called Scattered Minds, which is all about ADHD, we can very much change. If we've wired our brain a certain way at a young age, we can alter that by changing our environment as an adult and start to process and work through this stuff. And so for me as an individual, what I've noticed is that I went through school and I actually, I dropped out of school when I was 13, 14 years old because I despised it. I absolutely hated it because I did not, I didn't really feel as if I fit in. I didn't feel like I was able to learn. I didn't feel as if it was an environment that helped me grow as an individual. And so I dropped out because I thought I was thick. I didn't really feel I was that smart and I'm just gonna go ride my bike. But then what I realized is when I left school and I started to read and I started to explore the internet and actually dive into topics that interested me, I found out that actually, I can learn. And it's now at a point where I'm so obsessed with learning that I think last year, and this is not like a, a, a brag or anything, it's more just to highlight that it's a change of mental state. But like last year, I think I read 118 books. And I would never if you had told me that even five, 10 years ago, I would never have predicted that. Because I just had to alter my state and realize that actually, I am no different to anyone else just because I've been brought up in a certain environment, I just had to work through and overcome those limiting beliefs. And I think by labeling all of these kids with these, uh, these labels such as ADHD, ADD, uh, depression, anxiety, all of these things, what ends up happening is it's not productive because kids think I've got it. I can't get rid of it. It's just who I am. Uh, and a perfect example of this before I kind of jump on and I know I'm rambling is as a kid, when I was diagnosed with ADHD, my mom's best friend, also had a kid the same age who was diagnosed with ADHD. Now, my mom, we were the exact same age, we had very similar environments. And my mom ended up saying, you know what, Seb is going to go to a normal school, and he's going to kind of integrate with this society, and he's going to spend time with his friends, he's no different. Whereas my mom's best friend took the approach of no, my son is special, he needs extra help, he needs a support teacher and all this kind of stuff. And you can now see, he unfortunately has gone down this path where he's never had a job. He can't necessarily integrate in society because he's always been deemed special. So he's never been able to integrate and build that friendship network because he's been judged by others. Whereas I would like to think that I went down a relatively normal path. I kind of went through schooling. I built my friend network. I kind of figured out who I was and I kind of continued on life and I've had jobs and I am where I am today. And so you can start to see that we are a product of our environment. When you start labeling kids with all of these labels and you say, you've got this and you've got this, you've got this, it creates a lot of limiting beliefs. And these kids end up basically as a self-fulfilling prophecy. They become who we tell them they are. And so I think that society is not trending in a positive direction if we keep trying to alleviate short-term pain by labeling kids with these things just so we can get them a prescription on Ritalin to calm them down because we're just masking the issue. Yeah, this is a very, uh, uh, can be a very trigger triggering topic for people. I think because what I've begun to notice is we are a society which is increasingly becoming more and more attached to our identifications. But the identifications have to meet a list of being socially acceptable. So, and what I what I mean by that is like right now, um, like there seems to be an attachment to, oh, am I somewhere on the autistic spectrum? Am I, do I have somewhere, somewhere, do I land on the spectrum of ADHD? And then of course you have, you know, all of these political identifications and 
you know, I think that as people continue to search for who they are, like they're just, you can just see people are so desperate to figure out and live from their authentic self that they'll, they'll reach for anything that they can Mm -hmm. identify with and take pride in. And, um, but then they're also latching on to sort of the peer attachment style of living, which is very trendy. It's very much about, okay, I will attach to this identity only if it is socially acceptable to my peers. Mm-hmm. And I think that you've also touched on such a good point, which is the fact that what happens is the reason why kids are attaching to these labels is because it sometimes is the first time they're starting to feel acceptance. So if you were given the diagnosis of ADHD, now, why are you being given that diagnosis? Well, your parents are frustrated because you've got a ton of energy and you're not necessarily being able to let it out in school. And so they feel like pent up anger and frustration. Well, if they're feeling pent up anger and frustration, do you feel as if they're working on that sound parent-child bond? Or are they just kind of putting you in school? They're putting you in these after-school daycare programs or whatever in order to just kind of like push you off. And what ends up happening is that if you're not getting that connection from your parents, but all of a sudden you get a diagnosis of ADHD and then you get a support teacher, someone who's working with you one-on-one, sometimes you can start to feel that attachment in other ways. Or when people start identifying as different labels, you then find that peer group, which feels as if it is meeting your attachment needs. Now, I would argue that it's very superficial, so it's not meeting your attachment needs. But the reason why this is all stemming is because our parents are not meeting our attachment needs in the first place. Because as an individual, and this goes back to what we talked about at the start of the talk, if our parents uh, act as that anchor, if they act as that guiding compass, then we can explore the world from a state of growth mindset. So we can be expressive, we can be who we are without fear of rejection, because no matter what, we have that grounding force, which is our parents. And so we can go into our friendships with our peers, and we can be who we are. And if they don't like us for who we are, it doesn't matter because I have this person who loves me. I have this person who cares for me. And that is so powerful because it means that we're not trying to seek acceptance elsewhere. And so this is where I think in society these days, when you have a breakdown in the money and parents are having to go out and work more because they're just trying to put a roof over their kids' heads. And although they're trying as hard as they can, it's getting harder and harder and harder to get ahead. So kids are having to look to their peers for acceptance. And when they're looking to their peers because they don't have that guiding compass, which is their parents, they start losing themselves. And this is what I argue about this whole uh, in this whole article is that we're losing our sense of authenticity and culture because we're just losing that parent-child bond. And that is so important for kind of laying that framework for finding ourselves and being our authentic selves. Yeah, you can definitely see a trend with our society being extremely high time, high time preference. You know, whenever mm-hmm. there is a problem, it seems like the best thing to do is to solve the problem by putting a bandaid over it. So it's not, mm-hmm. you know, it's not about finding the root cause of the issue. It's about, you know, um, stifling, you know, making the issue less of a problem, reducing the noise. And I think that one thing that parents today really struggle with, my, myself included, is that at a, at some point, during you know during our life we became so obsessed with these externalities that when a child comes along who is so desperate for our love attention and energy and presence and we've been so we become so adept at giving externalities our all of our energy 
it's like a, it's so exhausting to be around to be around your children because it's almost like you just don't have time for them. I don't have time for this. The, mm -hmm. You know, I have all of these adult problems and all of these adult things that I have to worry about. And and then the, the child picks up on this. Uh, you know, we're actually referring to uh, this this concept of neuro uh, Darwinism because you know they're mirroring the the adult that you know that is with them most of the time and so when we basically say i don't have time for you i mean we're not saying these things outright but when we express that that so that the majority of things are outside of us that are important to us when we show them that and then when on top of that when we show them that we don't know how to deal with our own emotions when we when we say you know oh i see that you're having um you know, I see that you're having a lot of emotions. I see that. What's the word that you? Okay, so you in the article you use the phrase "acting out." I see that you're acting out because right now, you know, you don't know how to express what you're feeling, or you're not figuring out how to communicate with me. I also don't have time for that. I don't. I also don't know how to do that. So we're going to, you know, stifle that, and we're going to say you are misbehaving. You need to go to timeout. I don't have time for this. And then, you know, we sort of shut down. And this this behavior is mirrored in our children. hundred percent. And there's two examples that I give in the article, which I think are really, really fascinating. So the first one is I have a, one of my best friends uh, where I live and we see each other once or twice a week, like really, really close. And we were on a bike ride just recently. Well, when I say recently, a few months ago now, we're on a bike ride and she was talking to me and she was saying that when she was a kid, her mom used to be a nurse. Well, she, I think she still is a nurse. Uh, so her mom is a nurse. And her mom is incredibly loving, caring, and compassionate to her patients. But because she's just kind of like completely beat after working, her mom is not very loving, caring, compassionate to her. And so as a child, and we're talking about that, uh, you brought it up earlier, which is the theta brainwaves. So our theta brainwaves below the age of kind of seven to 10, we kind of take the world as it is. So what that means is we don't overlay our cognitive uh, thoughts on our own experiences. So if someone, let's just say I drop a milk jug out of the fridge and uh, our parents come to us and they're just like, oh my God, you're an idiot. Like we don't overlay and recognize, okay, they're calling me an idiot because I dropped milk on the floor. Instead, we take that literally. We will say, I'm an idiot. Uh, and I, I, I believe I'm an idiot now. And so as a kid, my friend, Helen, whenever she uh, wanted to look for that affection, whenever she wanted to express herself, her mum was not there to support her. Now, when she was sick, however, her mum being this nursing, caring, compassionate individual would give her a ton of attention. And so considering that as children, our primary need is attachment because attachment means survival. What she learned, and this is, this, this is not, it's innate. It is not a conscious thought. But what she recognized is that if I want uh, attention from my mum, I have to be sick. And so she became um, uh, hyper- a hypochondriac because she recognized uh, on a subconscious level that she got attention from her mum or from her parents when she was sick. And so as an adult, this persisted very much into her adult life. And we were talking and she mentioned that her partner is going through financial issues. And at the same time, her best friend has just left the country. And so she's lost her best friend and moved away. And then at the same time, during work, she's kind of being sexually harassed by this guy. But she doesn't have anyone to meet her needs because her partner is distracted by her money, her best friend is gone. And so all of a sudden, what starts happening? She starts to get sick, she starts to get flu, she starts to get cold. And you start to realize that this is not 
an environmental thing in terms of like, she's not actually catching a cold. This is her body's way of telling her that she's looking for attachment right now. She wants someone who can meet her needs. So you start to realize again, like if your parents don't meet their needs, we're going to look elsewhere or we're going to learn certain behaviors that get what we want. And then one more example of that is as a child, like what we're seeing more and more is through technology, we're seeing the increased prevalence of usage of formula. So parents are looking to use formula rather than breastfeeding. Now, this is, I would argue from my own personal research, and I know I'm not a woman and I'm probably going to get a, a, a ton of flack for this, but I would argue that going down the formula route, unless you have to because you cannot produce breast milk, is incredibly detrimental because what it's telling our children is that from such a young age, we may not remember what happens below the age of three, but our neural circuits this is right when our neural circuits are growing at the fastest capacity they will ever grow. So we take in our environment and we form implicit beliefs. So implicit meaning they are not, we're not attaching a memory to it, but we're starting to form an, uh, an idea of our experiences without attaching a memory to it. And so they're just implied. We, we, we imply something from our environment. And so the example that I give in the article is as a kid, when I was born, my mom was like, no formula to the nurses. Now, I was born a month early, so I had to go in an incubator. And when my mom came to see me after I'd been born, they were giving me formula. And formula has a ton of sugar in it, which means that I then find it really hard to then go from formula back to the breast. And what's that telling me if my mom is, or if someone is just sending me a bottle rather than being in my mom's arms and being breastfed? What's well, telling me as a child that I don't have that connection with my mum. I don't have that foundational support that is my mum. And so as a kid, this is huge because we start to build relationship avoidant tendencies because of this idea that we are not loved by our parents just because of our neural wiring as a kid, because we didn't have our, we didn't have our mum's connection at that very early stage. And so I think that we don't necessarily realize how much our beliefs are formed from our early experiences. I think it is it's so profound when you start digging into this kind of stuff. Ah, so many things are coming up are coming up for me when you uh, uh, when you go over this topic because I can really relate to what you're saying. I have I have so many um, so many things. So first of all, like I I totally agree. I think that vibrationally. So if you if you you know if you envision or believe that the world is is just a bunch of energy everything even matter itself is just a, is just energy and you imagine our economy and the our way of life as a flow of energy the just imagine the difference between the energy of formula which is you know very much about uh, profit it's very much it's not i think that i think that there because of our money and because of our we're so uh, keen to meet the needs in the present and not looking to the future. It becomes simply about the bottom line. And I think that naturally, you know, humanity is not inclined to, to be structured that way and our money uh, perverts that. But, you know, the, so the formula, the vibration of the formula from inception has this sort of, um, you know, fix the present, fix it in the present type of mentality, whereas the the breast milk is coming from the mother, um, you know, from a place of love, from nature. And, and you're right, like, I feel, I also feel nervous, you know, kind of talking about these things, because I'm not a woman. And 
but however i also do want to point out that the reason that i think that a lot of women get triggered around this aspect is because they feel like when we you know as first of all as men that we are somehow belittling them or guilting them and that's just simply not true like if mm -hmm. you cannot breastfeed i i can't imagine that there are many women at all who would just choose formula just for the sake of choosing formula i think sure there's probably some that are like yeah this is this is easier um so i'm just going to do it um but i also think that there are some moms out there who there isn't there's definitely an artwork there's it's like an art to figuring out how to breastfeed there are some women who just aren't naturally uh, as inclined to do it however there are as i've experienced with um with my wife because she's we're having our second child and coming in the next month and she's working this time around she's dedicated a lot of time and energy to educate herself on how to breastfeed because with our first child um she didn't we just kind of assumed that's like okay the milk's not coming so she must not be able to do it well mm -hmm. actually that isn't necessarily true because we have you know she in particular has taken the time and energy to you know to have a future oriented focus and be like, you know what, I should maybe take the time to see if this is a possibility for my kids. And sure enough, it is. And so, and so, yeah, that, that was one thing that I just wanted to bring up is because I think that people again are identified, can quickly identify with, you know, oh, this is, this is a, a man who's mansplaining. He's not in my shoes and this kind of thing. No, we're, we're just trying to have honest discussions about you know instead of identifying so strongly um you know with this this belief that i cannot breastfeed maybe let's consider another perspective that mm -hmm. you know just because you can't do it immediately or you know it's not like something that's just f flowing and flowing that that you cannot um explore different means and methodologies but it's you know it's just such a it's such a it really comes down to you know fix it in in the present or do we do we sacrifice the present moment if you can call it a sacrifice do we sacrifice the present moment to to improve our future type of thing for sure for sure and i, I could not agree more and i think that it's one of those things where i just don't think it's also part of it is just a misunderstanding people want to do what is best for their children but a lot of the time like there we're just kind of learning as we go and so a lot of parents that have just kind of approached life and then they've had a kid and then suddenly they're just kind of throwing all this information oh, sorry alarms going off they're just throwing all this information at them they're just kind of reacting to the information they're being given and so when as my mum mentions and i mentioned in this article is that from the moment she kind of entered the hospital to kind of give birth there are signs all over the walls that indicate formula is the way forward and so she had already done her research and understood that that is not what she wanted to do. But when you think about all the women that have not done the research, then they're going to think, huh, maybe, maybe we don't breastfeed anymore. Maybe we do go down the route of formula. And this is such a strong period of bonding with our children that when we go down the route of formula, we're breaking that bond. And to try and approach it from like an analogy of from the male approach, it's kind of like in those early formative years, if as a kid, we uh, if as an adult, sorry, we want to kind of show our kids these sports and these different environments, whether it's camping or basketball or mountain biking, we can do two things. We can either do it ourselves and build that relationship with our child and build that incredible bond, or we can just put them in after school practice. 
They're just playing with their peers. They don't have that incredible bond, which is their father seeking their, uh, like wanting to seek their attention and wanting to build that connection with them. And I noticed that as a kid because I didn't have my father around. I never really had, like my mom would send me off with uh, friends, uh, friends' dads and so I could go fishing and have that kind of that masculine energy. But I didn't really have that true masculine energy from my father. And so I think that the, the analogy would be like as a kid, if our dad was too busy with work and he just kind of put us in after school programs rather than kind of showing us the world, you're losing such an incredible opportunity to build that powerful bond. And this is the same with breastfeeding. You're losing that incredible opportunity to build that powerful bond by going across the formula. Uh, so I think that it's just, again, it's short-term alleviation uh, to kind of ease the amount of stuff that we've got on our plate in this fiat world where money is devaluing. I find it so interesting that you have taken this opportunity to, because you have a uh, connection, such a strong connection, it seems like with your mom. I know that she, you know, to, did worked super hard and and really dedicated herself to career so that you guys could you know have everything but it sounded like she was still very supportive of you supportive of you and then you know on the other hand you had your the experience of your dad who was a lot more disconnected um so it's it's very cool how you know this life experience has given you both perspectives and allowed you to leverage uh, those experiences so that you know you can you could create things like this article and speak with me about this here because you you don't have kids and um i just think it's it's cool that you have been able to reflect like you have well it's interesting as well because what i'm realizing now is that more than anything like i used to hold a lot of resentment and frustration towards my father uh but as i get older and especially in the last four or five years i've really realized that in the end when we have anger frustration whatever kind of what we deem kind of these negative emotions towards someone else, the only person it's impacting is us. It doesn't impact the other person. The other person many times doesn't even know that these things exist. And so over the last few years, I've actually really tried hard to rebuild that relationship with my dad. And I've recognized more than anything that I think people are always trying to do their best given the information they have. And when you approach life from this perspective, that people are always trying to do their best given the information they have. Now, that doesn't mean they're not going to make mistakes, but it means that whatever decision they made at that moment, given the information they had, they felt that that was the best decision. And so I think that when I look at my dad's upbringing and I realized that he was in a very strict family, he went to a, a British private school, things like that. I realized that to him, academia and accolades were incredibly important to him. And so when I can step back and recognize that, I don't blame him for his own actions because I realize that he's a product of his environment. And I think this is huge is having compassion for other people. Uh, and then also on top of that, like I feel really lucky because of the path that I've gone down, I really enjoy connection. And so I went down the route of, I've run a lot of kids camps. So I've seen a lot of and interacted with a lot of kids of very different ages. And for a while I was dating someone with a kid. So I've spent a lot of time around young children and, and I love it. I absolutely love it. And what I start to realize more and more is when you're interacting with kids and there is always that kid who has a lot of energy or starts to be kind of like disruptive to the group. When you start to speak to him and ask about his family life, you realize that 99% of the time they've got a tough upbringing. They've got the, like, they're not necessarily happy in their home. And so one thing that I think is really interesting, and I mentioned this in the article, which is children aren't traumatized because they were physically hurt but instead they were alone with their hurt 
And so we tend to think of like this trauma as, ah, oh, the parents beat them or the parents do X, Y, Z, or there's something that is horrendous. But the reality is you can have these parents that are incredibly loving and incredibly caring on a monetarily or on a monetary level, as in they give their kids whatever toys they need, whatever food they want, they take them wherever they want. But if they're not there emotionally, then the kid is alone with his hurt. And a lot of the time, kids will develop into like a lot of these challenges that we're seeing in society, purely just because although the parent was doing the best with the information they had, they weren't meeting their emotional needs. And this is just where I really try to highlight is that what is so important is this emotional expression. As a child, we need to be able to emotionally express ourselves. If we're not able to emotionally express ourselves, it shows itself in other forms later in life, whether that is the depression, ADHD, obesity, all of these things. And what's really interesting is that, so at the moment, I'm actually, I'm writing a book. And it's, I think it's going to be called Realigning Incentives. I'm about 95% of the way through. And what I recognized, and this was since writing this article, is that, so this article was all about how emotional expression is absolutely vital, because if we don't have emotional expression, it can lead to issues down the line. Well, monetary expression is just as vital. If in society we do not have accurate supply and demand, if people cannot monetarily express themselves where they want because the government impedes where you want to spend your money or they're taking your money through debasement and spending it elsewhere, then it shows itself in issues down the line. And so monetary and uh, emotional expression are absolutely vital or else we start to see consequences down the line because we're not expressing ourselves in the way we want to. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think a little a little hint that our kids give us as far as how our incentives are misaligned is just the sheer fact that no matter what we give them um, from a monetary aspect, from a resource aspect, the thing that they care about the most is the love and the emotional mm -hmm. attachment. That's the thing mm -hmm. that they care about the most. And if every single one of us is born this way and eventually, you know, and eventually turned to you know view it from this resource and monetary perspective you know it's just it seems obvious to me that it's very um it's very natural it's a very natural thing that if every kid is born wanting something totally different than what most parents believe is you know um the the ideal image or the ideal set of you know ways to express love it's just really it's really something that i think we need to sit back and and consider as as parents and as as human beings the only downside or i guess the only the major complication with all of this and and you and this is really kind of what the the bottom portion of your article is focused on is because our monetary system our system of economics is set up to basically trap you into these cycles and burdens of debt that you sort of become like a willing slave to the system and you just as we had discussed before you become so exhausted with trying to attain the resources for survival that you just you completely lose touch with the emotional connection mm-hmm no, and fully. And it's interesting because when you distort the money, you also distort people's behaviors and people's values. And so we've talked a, a little bit about kind of our time preference. So whether or not we favor the present or favor the past, 
But one of the interesting things when we talk about time pre uh, preference is when it comes to like saving or spending. And so in our society, when you have money that is being devalued, if one day to the next, we know that it's going to be worth less, then that is not conducive to a saving environment. We're not incentivized to save for the future. Instead, well, our purchasing power is going to be the best in the present. So I might as well spend my money now. So we create a consumer society. Now, if we're creating a consumer society, what we're telling our kids is that you always want the newest thing. You want the newest shoes. You want the newest bicycle. You want the newest Game Boy, whatever it may be. And we're creating the society that, again, is trying to fix and alleviate short-term needs. When our, parent, when our kids look to uh, parents, when they look to us for emotional support and we just hand them a Game Boy, it may short term diminish the, their their initial needs but in the long term they're never going to learn to emotionally regulate and this is huge and so i think that we really need to recognize how our money is impacting every single aspect of society and when we create this kind of consumer society although we may, may feel great in the short term we are not fixing the issues we're only masking the issues that are becoming pervasive and this is why we're leading to the society where since the 1970s We've seen a 230% increase in obesity. We've seen doubling of the, the diagnoses of ADHD. We've seen a 100% increase in the rates of depression. Like, I think the between the ages of 15 to 24, something like uh, the second highest consequence, the, the second, um, what is it? The second most uh, prominent cause of death between the ages of 15 to 24 is suicide. Like that is mind blowing. And it's just because kids are not, able to interact with this uh, with their environment because they don't know how to emotionally regulate themselves because they've been suppressing who they are as individuals and i would argue that much of this although we can't kind of uh connect all of it but i would say much of this stems from a broken monetary system and it's just harder and harder and harder for parents to get ahead these days yeah so well put i think um so what you're what you're saying basically makes me think back to something you had said very at the very beginning which is money is is a representation of our value and and our energy and right now the the monetary system these the type of money that we have deteriorates and it's kind of reflected back at, in society at large in that when we expend energy and create value for other people we don't we do not feel attached to that value like we should we don't treat it as though you know time is our most precious resource and you know this is coming from a place of love it's almost like the the money because it is a naturally deteriorating form of it it doesn't produce the best form of labor it doesn't progress the the best form of production from society because because that's not it doesn't represent the best form whereas a money that is designed to hold its value people then could can make a shift to say all right i can put forth my best energy i can put forth my best uh, my best effort to look forward to the future and actually you know to sacrifice the the waiting or you know to to be able to wait in the present in order to further grow something in the future and have a better outcome in the future the money probably isn't a reflection the money probably creates the this outcome it's not like humanity is that way naturally 
Um, no, the money we is definitely like we are a reflection of our money, not our money is a reflection of us. So depending on whether or not our money is distorted, it will reflect back on us as to like what our behaviors are, what we value, our time preference, things like that. And so actually yesterday uh, I went for I went ski touring and as I'm walking up, I'm, I'm talking with my friend uh, and she mentioned something about how capitalism, a lot of the issues stem from capitalism. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to push back on that. And so we went into this whole discussion that you and I have just had. And one of the things that I really think those that are kind of new to Bitcoin or new to trying looking at the world from a different monetary lens, what they struggle to grasp is that let's just say hypothetically, we went over to a Bitcoin standard or even just to simplify it. Let's just say we went over to a new money that had a fixed amount of supply. Now, if in this world, when you have a fixed amount of supply, what's really interesting is that technology is always advancing. And so the example that I like to give is uh, Blockbuster. So you guys have probably been to Blockbuster where you, you got to spend gas to drive down to Blockbuster. You then have to spend, I don't know, however long searching for the movie you want to rent. You then got to pay your five, $6 to rent the movie. You've then got to drive from Blockbuster back to your home. You've then got to watch the movie and then you've got to drive back to Blockbuster. You've got to drop off the movie. Then you've got to drive back from Blockbuster back to your home. So in, during that period, you can think about how much time went into just renting this one movie, but also the amount of money that went into the gasoline to drive to and from Blockbuster four times and the uh, money to rent one movie. And so what you realize is that when Netflix came about, all of a sudden you could spend whatever it is, 10 bucks a month, and you can have endless movies at your fingertips. So you're noticing that through technology, we're always trying to get more for less. The same is for the car and the horse. When we advance from horses to cars, you could travel so much further, far cheaper. And so technology is always trying to get more for less. So if you have a society that is increasing in its productive capacity, we're trying to get more for less in everything we do, then naturally, if we're trying to get more for less, then prices over time come down. Now, if prices are coming down over time, then that means our money's purchasing power is increasing. And that means that as an individual, if I'm a parent, and my purchasing power is increasing over time rather than decreasing, then that means I'm able to slowly work less over time and I can spend more time with my family. I can spend more time with those that matter, my kids. I can build that parent-child bond in the way that I want to because I have more time to focus on that. And so you start to realize that under a different monetary system, you realign those values rather than having these misaligned values. You start to have a system where we're actually getting more time from our money rather than less. And this is huge. So I think that like more than anything, I would recommend like reading Jeff, book, uh, Jeff Booth's book, which is The Price of Tomorrow, because he dives into this, how technology is naturally deflationary. Over time, it drives down prices because we're always trying to get more for less. So if you have a fixed monetary supply, then prices should always decline and our purchasing power increases, which gives us more time to do whatever it is that we want. And that, that is, for me, when I realized that, that was a huge stepping stone in understanding okay, we're on the wrong path right now with our money and our money is sucking our time. And then those in the positions of power where they have this monetary printer, what they can do is they can just turn the printer on and what they're doing is taking value from one subset of the population, which is the currency holders, and they're redistributing it to wherever they feel fit. And a lot of the time where they feel fit is those areas of the economy that are being a drag or have fragility. But the problem is if we're just stimulating those areas of the economy that are fragile, then what are we doing? We're perpetuating failure. We're not letting companies that are being fiscally irresponsible, areas of the economy that are not providing value, we're not allowing them to wither away and we're, we're impeding productive capacity in society. 
those that are actually producing value, those that are actually have enough money to save, we're taking their value and they're redistributing it back to areas of the economy that are struggling and failing, which is basically just economically destructive. It's not conducive to any form of like growth in society and it's going to impact humanity long term. You know, something something that I heard recently and that really struck me was, you know, we obviously as a species, we are naturally connected to Mother Earth and to nature. And so in in my opinion, I think that we can look to nature and the way that it organizes itself as a fantastic example on how we can develop and you know thrive in our own lives and just on the on the economic front what i heard recently that it was just so i had never considered before is that in nature nothing gets so so massive that and that it just continues to grow and grow and grow and grow endlessly eventually that thing will become so large and inefficient that it will just die. I mean, that's why you see billions and billions and billions of tiny little bugs. And that's why you don't see like trees that extend up outside of the atmosphere and you see them spreading out laterally and into into individual units. And so I, I think it is interesting to kind of point out that economically when you have units that just continue to grow into these super large monopoly monopolies that you know really own entire sectors of our world economy regardless of whether or not it is you know it, regardless of whether or not the name expands across all of the across all of the uh, tentacles it's still owned by by the mm-hmm. same by the same people and it's just completely unnatural and so it sort of you know gives birth to all of this unnatural and happiness unhappiness and disconnect with the people that be, are involved with the organizations mm-hmm. and and it's interesting you say that because when we were uh, touring yesterday with this person that I was trying to explain this whole system to one of her pushbacks was yeah but in the free market when you have kind of capitalism you have these monopolies form and I kind of pushed back and I said no you naturally like although yes they're like I, I, I cannot argue that in no situation would you have monopolies form however what I would say is that this is a product of crony capitalism and crony capitalism is whereby you have a state that has the effect of, the effects of lobbying and you have capitalism to some certain extent. And so what ends up happening is you see big corporations, whether it's Microsoft, whether it's Apple, whether it is Monsanto, you see all of these corporations that they kind of defy the laws of the free market because they can rise up, they can become these big corporations, but then they can lobby and then put regulation in place to create a regulatory moat. And in doing so, they can continue to increase in size, which is completely unnatural. Whereas, as you mentioned, in nature, what ends up happening, and this is the same for corporations, is that as a corporation grows in size, it starts to become ossified, it starts to calcify, because it's hard for that corporation to pivot quickly when it's got 100,000 or so employees. It's really hard, whereas some small little nimble corporation, some new uh, exciting startup can quickly adapt and meet the needs of the market, which allows for creative destruction to happen. And what's interesting is we've seen this happen over time as technology has advanced. When you look at the S&P 500, so the Standard & Poor's uh, 500, some of the 500 biggest companies in the US, when you look at 
over the last 100 years, we've gone from around 100 years ago, I believe the average age of the company in the S&P 500 was, I think, around 70 years old, whereas today it is around 10 to 12 years old. So you can already see the age of these corporations is uh, kind of diminishing as technology takes a hold, because as technology's rate of growth increases, then you see this rate of creative destruction increase too. So companies are basically being broken down quickly through technological advancement. But these big corporations, these big monopolies that we see today are not a product of capitalism. They're a product of crony capitalism. They're a product of these individuals that have this excess capital being able to direct it towards lobbying and then creating regulatory moats, which is not natural. That's more of a like democratic socialist response to uh, the free market rather than a traditional naturally emergent free market. Yep, exactly. Exactly. It's the, the individual has been basically lobbied against so that they have less power mm -hmm. and, you know, to circle back around to this idea of conscious parenting is we are doing, we're talking about is re-empowering our children and teaching them how to thrive in this world without needing things outside of themselves and how to deal with their emotions. Um, you know, you, you obviously have gone down a spiritual journey and you've obviously gone through a lot of spiritual growth. And I'm sure you've begun to, begun to realize this yourself is that even, even if let's say you had, if it's possible to define this way, a perfect childhood and both parents were emotionally supportive and taught you everything that you needed to know at the end of the day, it's completely up to you to be connected to your authentic self. It's completely up to you to choose to to live um from this from the higher place mm -hmm. no and and you know what like it goes back to that question that you asked early on which was like society obviously has this idea of success which is kind of accolades and in and in economics it is growth in uh employment and growth in uh gdp and inflation uh but when it comes to the individual one thing that i really really like to kind of uh, view this kind of or this holistic approach to kind of the individual is the difference between beingness and doingness. So doingness is what we do. It is our job. It is kind of more of these superficial aspects of who we are. Uh, and I think society pushes us to focus on our doingness. Okay, you need the job, you need the money, you need the house, you need all of these things around us. But that creates a very superficial lifestyle. Whereas our beingness is, well, how do I want to be in this world? Do I want to, what are my values? How do I want to approach life? And I think that more than anything, what I'm recognizing as I grow older is that I really would just want to strive to support those around me in their beingness rather than their doingness. And in doing so, I approach no matter what it is, whether I have to change job, whether it is that I get fired, whether or not my interests change, I'm always approaching with the same values rather than being, you know what, I want to be a firefighter. So then I go down the route of firefighting and then realize, actually, I don't want to be a firefighter. And then I feel disappointment because I didn't really know who I was. Whereas being able to approach things with values rather than expectations uh, through these physical superficial things, I think is much more... Uh, it, it promotes a sense of self and authenticity rather than a more of a materialistic uh, ideals approach to life. Man, that is so well said. Um, the last thing that I wanted to ask you, and so what, what I've been doing in my interviews is the, the last question that I ask um, is, you know, as a parent, what is the, you know, the number one thing that 
you have learned thus far from your kids. And, you know, since you don't have kids, maybe, maybe I could turn it around as a child, maybe what was the, what was the number one thing that you learned from, from your parents? You know what? And I, I, I touched on it briefly uh, when I was talking about my dad. And, and that is the fact that more and more as an adult, I recognize that everyone is trying to do their best given the information they have. And when I realized that it was such a profound realization, it helped me remove that judgment because you realize that when someone treats you poorly, when someone does something you don't like, when you're able to, you don't have to agree with it, but what you realize is that you can have compassion for the other person. And so I would say, I really would say that that is the biggest takeaway that has changed the way that I look at life is just this understanding that everyone is trying to do the best they, uh, the best they can given the information they have. I, I think that is huge. Yeah. And that's such a beautiful reframe too. So many people are quick to sort of victimize themselves and their circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so for you to sort of, you know, turn around and say, I, this, there's something that, that I can learn here and I can empower myself with that is really cool. Mm -hmm. And you know what I want to like, I always find it fascinating. Like a lot of the time when we're on these podcasts, the attention is usually directed towards the interviewee. Whereas like, I would, how would you answer that question to yourself and maybe turn it back into the original question, which is what do you think you've learned so far in your parenting that has really stood out? For me, the number one thing, and my son, he's only two years old, what he needs the most is my presence and my love. So when I can be and this physically, when I can be physically on his level, looking him in the eyes, communicating with him, I just, th that is, that is connection. That is the human connection right there. And, you know, even though he's a two-year-old bouncing off the walls, <laughs> knocking things over, throwing things, I can still communicate with him just like any other person. And even though he is new to this world, it doesn't mean that he is any lesser of a human being. And so it is important that I respect him as an individual and I respect his sovereignty as well. And I, instead of taking the controlling parent role, I instead play the role of a guide. And, mm -hmm. you know, at this point, at this point in his life, a lot of that guidance uh, has to do with physical safety because he um, you know, because he will do things that will bring him into physical harm without without knowing what he's doing. But as he continues to grow, I'm sure that will also continue to evolve. And, you know, what's amazing about that is this this lesson. That, and that's why when I phrase the question, I always ask, what has been the number one lesson up to this point? Mm -hmm. And that is because as the child grows and goes through these things, the lessons change. And you also, as the parent, grow with that child. It's it's really an amazing thing. It's interesting you say that because uh, a couple of years ago, I dated uh, someone who had a one-year-old kid and we dated for about kind of six months through into kind of that 18-month mark. And she was just being a single mom was so overwhelmed. And this is when I really went deep down from my own, my personal kind of parenting experience. Like I went deep down into the parenting books and tried to understand, okay, how does the the child's brain work? How do they, how do they, how do you interact on effectively with these kids? And what you really recognize is that even before these kids can talk, they have a deep understanding of what's going on around them and even a deeper understanding of language than we, they let on. And so I remember once 
when he was about uh, 13 months old, 14 months old, he comes up behind me as I was writing and he was just like, pulls on me to want to play. And I just said, I was like, hey, Ollie, like uh, at the moment, I'm just kind of doing a little bit of work, but I'll come over in a minute and we can play. And so he just kind of like shook his head and then wandered over. And then when I came over to him, it's as if he understood what I was saying before he could ever communicate and kind of confirm that he understood what he said. He, he yes, left, me, exactly. like, left me alone. And it's phenomenal. And I think one of the other things that really opened my eyes is this kind of idea of authenticity and emotional growth is so powerful. And so as an adult, if we can instill this in our kids, if we're able to communicate to them, one, how they feel, but also how we feel. So as a kid, when they first enter this world and when they first start communicating, they don't know how to name emotions. And so we've got to show them how to name emotions. And so when, when they do something that we don't like, or when we're feeling a certain way, when we're feeling frustrated, hungry, angry, when we're able to express that in words, then they can start to connect those emotions to words. And it's the same with them. If they look like they're feeling hungry, we can be like, hey, I notice you're feeling hungry or I notice you feel you look like you feel frustrated right now. And by doing this, you're starting at a very young age to connect emotions to feelings. And this is huge because then they can better express themselves as they grow. Yes, yes, absolutely. And so this is where, you know, it comes down to a leadership by example, instead of leadership by control and force. So mm -hmm. instead, where I think in generations past, you weren't allowed to show your emotions and you were sort of shunned if you did show your emotions. Instead, it is now we as the adult know how to use our emotion because there is a reason for them. And we can also teach our kids how to do that. I mean, I just, if I could go back and know the things that I know now that I'm learning as an adult, if I could go back and teach them to myself as a child, I, I can't imagine how different my life would be today. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 100%. So I had, I did actually have one more question to you that's a little off topic, but you had mentioned that you read uh, like 118 books last year. I mean, first of all, kudos to you. That's, that's amazing. Do you have, any any tricks as far as how you accomplish that i mean any like some kind of like crazy speed reading technique or something you use yeah so learning and like efficiency of learning is something that i i find really really fascinating and so actually you're the first person who's kind of caught on to this and asked this question because i don't really talk about this very much other than just with friends and so one of the biggest things that i find is our minds when you actually dig into how we learn when we read, reading is not very effective because one, we sub vocalize. So we say what it is that we're reading in our head and then we listen to what we're saying in our head. So we're actually still listening to what we are reading. It's just, it's got, we're one step removed from it because we have to read it, translate it into language and then listen to what we say in our head. And this is called sub vocalization. Whereas when we listen, we avoid that whole step of processing from the act of reading. Now, what's really interesting is a lot of people are like, hey, I'm, I'm not very good at uh, listening. I just get distracted, so I'd much rather read. And this is where the big difference between reading and listening kind of comes in, is that people find reading easier to comprehend because they're able to stay focused. Whereas once you're able to kind of focus in on what you're listening to, that is when you're able to learn really effectively. And so for me, I take my dog walk uh, for walks like once or twice a day and we just wander through the forest and where there is no other stimuli other than the forest. And I find that as an environment that helps me listen to what it is that I am uh, reading. And what's more is our brain can also process much faster than it lets on. And so over time, you can start to move up your words per minute. So you can go from, I think, 
normal people speaking is about 160 words per minute. Then you can go up to kind of 200, to, uh, 250, 300, and so on. And as you start moving up, just be really conscious that you're not pushing yourself to the point where you don't understand what they're saying, but you're able to work up to a point where, okay, you've found that sweet spot where you're able to integrate what it is that they're saying, but you're also able to work through books a little faster. And this is huge because you can start to, when you're reading big books, by physically reading it, it can take a month or two. Whereas when you can listen to it, it can take eight, 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 eight hours, seven, eight hours. And so on a handful of dog walks, you can work through a pretty decent sized book. Now, the final other step that I would say when it comes to comprehension is our minds are really good at connecting disparate dots of random information. What our minds are not very good at is uh, remembering specific facts, dates, numbers, things like that. And so what you can do is you can build, if you have a note-taking app of sorts, you can either just use the, the Apple Notes on your, on your iPhone, you can use, uh, what are the other ones? Um, Evernote, I use one called Obsidian. Um, and what happens is when I take notes, I want to try and create a scaffolding of my brain. So my brain is really good at connecting dots. It's not very good at remembering information. And so when you've got a note-taking system, you're kind of collaborating with your ability to connect dots and your note-taking system's ability to remember specific pieces of information. And so if you have some form of tagging system, whether you're using hashtags or links and you're able to uh, find information easily in your notes, then you're kind of getting the best of both worlds. So kind of going back to kind of summarize that, it's really important, one, to kind of see if you can transition over to the act of listening, because our brain is far better at taking in information when we're listening than when we're reading. We just have to get over the ability of being distracted. And then two, build a note-taking system whereby we are more effective uh, at connecting dots. So we've got to have that note-taking system to store all of the information and we've got to go back to it over time. The more you go back to it, the more you remember it. And that's kind of how you build comprehension, but also you can just work through information. So I'm curious when you are taking notes, are you stopping like in the middle of your walk and then writing something down or is it more so I'll listen for 15 minutes and then, you know, summarize the block type of thing? So you know what, this is, it's a really good point because a lot of people take notes when they read a book, they're just like, okay, this is what chapter one said. And this is what chapter two said. And this is what chapter three. And the reality is that it's just such a waste of time because if something doesn't really resonate with you, if you're taking a note on it, you're just wasting your time. So the key thing when it comes to taking notes is take notes on things that resonate with you. If something doesn't resonate with you, there's no point in taking a note because you'll never go back to it. And so the first thing you got to do when you're going through a book, if something really stands out, I just pause it right then and there and I write it down. Now, there's kind of three stages to notes. The first stage to notes is when I take a note, I tend to either copy the text from like the ebook or whatever it is that I'm reading. Uh, or if I'm listening, I try to copy the text kind of somewhat accurately about what they're saying. Now, that's the first stage of the note. And then once I finish the book, what I then do is I go through and I start to bold all of the stuff that really stood out to me. So my note should already be all the stuff that I found really interesting. But once I've gone through all of the stuff that's interesting, I then highlight the things that were really kind of profound or kind of gave me insight. Now that's the second stage. And then the third stage is of the things that I then found that were incredibly insightful and profound, I then expand on it in my own words. And so these are kind of the three stages. And every single one of my notes I have, first, all of the notes that I found interesting in the book. Then I have all of the ones that were really kind of profound, bolded. 
And then I have all of the ones that out of the ones that were really profound and bolded, I've kind of expanded on a few of those into ones that, wow, I've got my own thoughts or they connect to other notes. Because this is something that's really fascinating is that if our mind is really good at connecting dots, when we have a note, if there's something that stands out in our book, like let's say I'm reading a book called, or actually recently or about a year ago, I read a book called The Happiness Advantage. And one thing stood out to me because I remember I was reading another book and one specific fact stood out to me. And so what I would do is I would connect that one fact to this other book that I was reading. And in doing so, our notes then start to represent how our brain actually functions. What we're doing is we're looking for uh, similarities and things we're learning with other things we're learning. And so then our, our note-taking system starts to represent our brain. And that is when I found my note-taking system kind of began to kind of create a life of its own. It was kind of like my second brain. And there's, there's a bunch of people that refer to their note-taking systems as my second brain. So a kind of long-winded answer to your uh, to your question. No, not at all. It was super valuable. I, I think you know you have um, you have Looking Glass education. I think it would be well worth, and maybe you already have one. A course um, on on how you learn would be super valuable. As, you know what? I a little while back I started writing a course on this. And I was like, man, do people, will they find interest in this? But I think that I've never really vocalized that to many people. And so I started writing it, but I haven't actually ever released it. So I think that maybe this gives me the motivation to continue because I think that for me, learning is so fascinating. And I mentioned earlier in this talk, like as a kid, I thought I was like thick. I was like, I can't learn. I've got short-term memory loss. I'm crap at this kind of stuff. And then as an adult, I was like, that's all just limiting beliefs when you find out what you are interested in, our ability to learn is profound. And I think that a lot of people, sometimes when I mention, hey, I just read this book, or I read that book, or I've done this, they're just like, oh my God, you're so special. You're able to do all the, and I'm just like, no, I've dedicated a lot of time to my ability to learn. And if you want to learn, you can also do the same. Learning is just a skill like anything else. And uh, I was not born with that skill. And so more than anything, a lot of these things are not innate. If, if, if people recognize that, then I think the world would be a better place because if we just dedicate our time to things, we can improve as individuals. Yep. Yep. I think that's a, a, a great place to end it. Um, so Seb, Seb, before I uh, let you go, maybe talk a little bit about where people can connect with you. Talk a little bit about Looking Glass. For sure. Yeah. So I've kind of got too many, uh, two primary places you can uh, connect. So I have a newsletter, a, week, a free weekly newsletter. And this kind of dives into it. it's called the Chi of Self Sovereignty, and you can find it at just Seb Bunny, so S E B B U N N E Y dot com, uh, and it's free. Comes out every Wednesday, and I kind of dive into what it's like to kind of live in a, an increasingly not so free world. But I approach it from the perspective of kind of self sovereignty, how we can be more self sovereign, uh, how we can become masters of our own emotions, whether we're looking at like meditation or whether it is uh, our money and all of these aspects. And then I've got uh, Looking Glass and Looking Glass, I started with a bunch of like really uh, incredible other individuals that I just really admire. And uh, Looking Glass is kind of a free platform for education uh, and it's all kind of built around financial education. Um, and we have three different kind of offerings. We have kind of self-paced courses. So if you're a self-learner and you want to uh, kind of dive into Bitcoin or macroeconomics, financial literacy, and actually SAMA, Samo, for those that are not familiar, Samo is all about kind of consciousness and spirituality. He has a meditation course on our site as well. And uh, so for those that want to dive into this information themselves, we've got self-paced courses. We also have curriculum for teachers. So if you're a teacher and you want to teach about macroeconomics, we have free curriculum for teachers. And then finally, we have 
we're working on building out what's called our educators toolkit. And that is for individuals that want to teach to their community, but they're not teachers, but they want to start whether it's a Bitcoin meetup, whether they want to go to their local community hall and they want to kind of spread the word about what's happening in the world. We're working on building out a bunch of slide decks so these individuals can teach from these slide decks. Uh, and then I mentioned it during our talk, but uh, I'm also working on writing a book at the moment. And that book is basically an expansion of this article that we've talked about, uh, the surprising solution to our downfall in culture and authenticity. And so the book is going to be called Realigning Incentives. And if you're interested in that, you can definitely give me a follow on my website, sebbunny.com, um, and because I'll definitely mention it on there. But the whole idea behind the book is that everything is downstream of money. When you distort the money, you distort every aspect of society. And so the first two chapters of the book are this article where I try to kind of link the, or kind of create that connection between a breakdown in our emotional expression ends up impeding our ability moving forward. And I connect that to this is a problem with our money. And then I go into, well, how does money impact other areas of society like government or uh, environmental side of things or politics or um, businesses? And so I kind of dive into all of these different aspects so that people can start to recognize that money is just not this thing. we It's not simply this thing that we interact with. It impacts every single thing we do. And so, yeah, that's called realigning incentives. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. This has been such a fun conversation. I, wow. Yeah, we could talk for hours, I feel like. So thank you so much. No, anytime. And I just really, really value, and I mentioned this at the start, I, I just truly, truly value anyone who wants to kind of talk about kind of being the best we can be as humans, trying to see the world as it is, being objective and trying to improve the lives of our kids and those around us, I truly, truly admire. So I, I, I want to thank you, Caleb, and thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Yeah, let's do it again. 100%.